You are listening to the DIY Recording Guys podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production, with your hosts, Fadim Karaz and Benjamin Hall. Episode of the DIY Recording Eyes podcast. Ben, you're back. You're back, back to me, man. my friend. I only got fried a little bit, but now I can recover with some cloud cover in Western Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> you're back for the cloud cover. Yeah. Yeah. I, I missed uh, the DIY crew and my studio and hanging out with you. So it's good to be back. Well, it was a nightmare without you. I had uh, one episode that didn't work out and one episode where I, I think I recorded my laptop mic instead of the <laughs> the big nice mic over here and um i don't know i just went with it so i need you i need you to balance out the uh, the technical <laughs> issues i need a sounding board you're running the setup so i don't know what good i can do but you know just having me here i guess tell us about your break a little bit what'd you do what were the highlights sure so the purpose of going out there actually was to have our wedding ceremony we rescheduled it once and then had to reschedule it again so yeah it was really frustrating because when they locked everything down like nothing was open and especially government agencies were not prepared to handle anything online it seemed like so that was our probably the biggest hassle right when we wanted to get married all the courthouses shut down so we had to wait i think it was like four or five months just to get our uh wedding license signed because they weren't accepting Brutal. foot traffic at all. Yeah, so uh, yeah, that was the purpose right. of going out there. Um, so we finally got that done. Woohoo! And actually, I recommend doing it this way because you mean a year late. You recommend getting married and then I totally recommend it because <laughs> just spacing everything out so far, I think spaced out all the stress of like one wedding day to get everything done. And so we did this mm. part of being married at this time and then we did the name change stuff like six months later and then we did an actual ceremony a year later like obviously gotcha. obviously people aren't going to do it that way but it was kind of nice to not be so stressed out about having a perfect wedding day and just having a cool celebration to hang out with just having a day where you can yeah. get people together sure exactly so it was it was really even though it wasn't <laughs> ideal the way that it all worked out like it still wound up being cool that was the point of going out there to Idaho, but um, uh, we took a day about a week later to go to this place called the, uh, I gotta think of it, um, the Craters of the Moon. And it's basically a super ancient, inactive, like volcanic area. Hmm. And there's just volcanic rock and lava tubes everywhere that you can walk through and climb through and go spelunking in. And it's just Whoa. wild. First, yeah, first of all, it's wild because uh, I don't know if it's just East Coast me is just used to everything is regulated and you have to pay for it and, you know, you're not allowed to do certain things. There's areas that are too dangerous. Like, there was none of that here. <laughs> like, we were crawling down in these caves that were barely big enough to fit, like, a human body. Like, we're squeezing into these tight wow. areas that are pitch black. We had to take lights with us to see where we were going. And there's nobody around, like... If you fell and got hurt and were by yourself, you're probably going to die. Because there's wow. not, there's just not people looking. So I was a little bit nervous about going, but you know, everybody else was just like, "Oh, come on, we did this when we were kids." So I couldn't chicken out. Um, so the but, shortest till death do us part story ever. 
<laughs> thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, it worked out good. Uh, Idaho is a high desert, so even though it's not super mm. hot, it is a desert. And when we were there, it happened to be hot. It was in the 90s all week and super dry. The sun's beating down on you and you go into these lava tubes and there's ice inside of them just under the surface. It's just crazy. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. Very crazy. But that was, I took a lot I of pictures. I wonder if they made good acoustic insulation. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Isn't the same like thermal insulation as good acoustic insulation? Isn't that what Yesco yeah. was telling us? Yeah, that's what he was saying. You could start a business, man. Lava, lava tube insulation. Yeah, lava, lava tube insulation, yeah. <laughs> Fire mixes. Get your low end right. Yeah. It sells itself. I love it, man. I've been reflecting on like where I am a lot in, in my audio journey and what my current list of interests and challenges are. We, we mm. did that like year-end roundup, and this is not meant to be that, but I did want to yeah. ask you, uh, you know, what, what are the things that you've been kind of toying with and playing with and learning about? Uh, for me, the big thing has been saturation lately. Mm. I've been, you know, saturation is something we all use and love, right? A guitar amp distorted is saturation, and guitar amp in general is saturation. Saturation lets you add harmonic content to a source material. There's a lot of different ways to do that. Certainly distortion is one. Tape plugins, all this kind of stuff is saturation. I've used it forever, right? But I, I've really lately been into thinking about different uses for it, how I use it, what I use, and really trying to learn what the different types of saturation sound like and what they do to tones. You know, mm -hmm. what works on a source versus what works on a mix. And as I've been doing that, I unfortunately caught a bad case of gear acquisition syndrome. <laughs> oh, and no. I bought this sitting right here, this uh, from DIY recording equipment, uh, episode 37, I think it was. I talked to Peterson Goodwin. So they made this color duo thing, which is a two-channel... Uh, processor so it's got a left channel and a right channel or channel one and channel two and mm. both channels have a preamp so you could run a mic into it or you can run a line level signal to it and then there's just these three they call it color slots so these slots get a little um a little card that gets inserted into it like a hardware plug-in and there's different colors or flavors of, of saturation. So hmm. it's a DIY kit, so it took me a long time to build. When I built it, I screwed it up. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, uh, I soldered some pins onto the wrong side of these two little daughter boards, mm. and I ended up ruining the boards in the process of trying to fix it. But the support was really great. I actually was emailing Peterson back and forth, um, and... He's known for having good support, but he sent me two new boards. I ended up getting it fixed up. So I'm finally up and running and testing these things, and I have three different saturation colors. And so I'm trying to learn and train my ears on how to hear these things. Mm. So we can talk about that a little bit. Um, and uh, then we have a couple of listener questions. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other thing I've been I've been struggling with and working on in my own workflow is templates templates is something i've failed at many times but i now have a new approach which Ooh. might work so those are the things on my agenda 
Give me a couple things that you've been uh, tinkering with and thinking about that we want to hit here. I haven't put a ton of thought into it yet, but I was listening to a YouTuber that I follow. And he mentioned something about, uh, it was like a listener question he was answering. And the question went something along the lines of, you know, my problem with mastering isn't how loud I can get it. It's when I get my tracks loud, the balance falls apart. And he was kind of tongue-in-cheek criticizing him and saying, no, that is your problem because part of mastering is getting it loud while maintaining the balance of everything. And I think it gave me a different perspective or a different way of thinking about mastering because I feel like so many times when I've approached mastering, um, I'm trying to push my track to like a appropriate loudness. And then once the balance starts to fall apart, I back off. I never really considered or thought too much about, well, could I push through that and then add some processing that would help maintain the balance I had before in my mix mm. while pushing it to a different loudness level. So that's that's something something to ponder and consider, and about which I really haven't done too much of yet or tried, but that's one thing I've been thinking about. I think that is worth talking about. I actually want to do an episode soon i haven't run this by you yet but i want to do an episode on like quick and dirty diy masters just you know five quick steps you're done with your mix what to do to hmm. get a uh you know a quote-unquote mastered mix yeah, but to your point i guess talking about workflows for a second so it sounds like this person's problem was that they would have a mix that they presumably were happy with then they would go into the mastering process they would push that mix loud through whatever processes, and then they felt like the balance had changed to where it was no longer good sounding to yes. them, right? Yeah, that's what it And so like. I know like you avoid that problem using top-down mixing, I think, right? Do you want to talk about that? I assume you don't run into this? Yeah, I don't run into it as much. So a lot of times uh, when I'm mixing, I start with my mastering my mastering change, even though it's, I would still consider that mixing. And I'll even put a limiter on my mix while I'm mixing so that specifically so I can hear how something super loud is tamed, like the transients are tamed by that limiter. Because um, I find that you have to get a snare, especially in aggressive music, you have to make the snare a lot louder than you think if you really want to crush it with a limiter. And that was that was always yeah. my problem before when I was only doing mixing first and then I would just throw a limiter on just to see, you know, how is this going to be affected by a master? And then all of a sudden your snare drum just disappears. You think you think your drums are so loud and then you limit something heavily and then all of the transients disappear. So that's mm. one that's one way of kind of avoiding that is to mix into a limiter. I, I would say the only risk with that is if you're getting somebody else to master your music, they're going to have to use a similar style of processing to get the same results that you're hearing, right? Mm. Or else the balance could be way off. So I, I think, yeah, part of the part of that is what processing, you know, this is hypothetical because we don't know this person or what they're doing, but what processing are you using in the mastering chain that could affect your your tone? So, I mean, obviously you mentioned one, the limiter, 
by definition, mm -hmm. we uh, we talked about on the dynamics episode, a limiter is basically a compressor with an infinite ratio. So as soon as you hit, as soon as a, a, a sound uh, sample hits the limiter threshold, the limiter basically just caps it. That's why it's called a brick right. wall limiter, just caps it at that threshold level. Nothing gets above that. So what you're saying is absolutely true. You have these transient things like drums, and I've run into this as well, where you know the drum, like the snare drum is a big transient, and then the limiter it just kind of crushes that transient down. So all of a sudden the snare becomes quieter. But I think a lot of times people are putting other processing into their mastering quote unquote mastering chain because they think they should. I mean, you might mm -hmm. have a stereo widening effect, which is commonly used. And if you push those things too far, your mix can start to fall apart and become unfocused and uncentered. You can mess with the center channel of the stereo field. Um, there's multi-band compression, which can certainly kill a mix very quickly if you if you don't have that set right. Uh, so it also is a question of what are you doing in the mastering chain that is affecting your mix. Certainly one solution is to mix into a limiter. I like that as well. In fact, you know, I've talked about, I, I used to not like to do that. I used to like to really build a mix up and then add those processes later. Um, but I, I do start, I have started doing that more and more actually mixing into my final chain mm. because I just find that I know I'm going to use it and right. why struggle with something that I don't have to struggle with if, because I used to like, the, I like the feeling of like, okay, this is sounding good. And then I run it through my magic sauce chain and then it sounds even better. And that feeling was so cool. Yeah. But like, it's really a waste of time <laughs> to mix that way. Yeah. I have a few plugins that are very sensitive. So let's say you get your mix most of the way there and then you want to add some saturation and you're using a plugin or a clip or whatever it might be. And you put this plugin on and all of a sudden it's just the first the first dial in position one, it's just way too much. And I, I found that with certain things that I was using. And so that was part of the reason why I wanted to do the top-down mixing and go into it from the beginning because then uh, you're not going to add things to your individual tracks that are going to build up too much, if that makes sense. It does make sense. There's actually a nice transition into another thing I wanted to talk about, which is, which mm. is templates. Um, you know, you, you read all the time about these big name mixers using templates to speed up their workflow. And so something I, I really wanted to do, and a, a couple of years ago, I tried to set up some, some templates. I, I basically, I took some of my favorite mixes in a couple of different genres and I said, cool, these are going to be the roots of templates for these genres and I actually set up multiple templates for multiple genres so I had like my big metal template and I had my like punk trio template and my indie acoustic template and I set up all these templates it took me a long time and I you know I would set up each track and then I tried to mix using those templates what I would do is I would have my stems that I would edit I would say edit them in a session and then, like I know you like to do, you basically start over with a new mix session. I would load in now my edited stems into a template session, and then I would move things around. So I would say, okay, my kick drum goes on the kick track, and my snare drum goes on the snare track. And I found that when I would hit play, 
I instantly just found it terrible. The gain staging <laughs> was all wrong. And in trouble pulled out, I'm like, there's too many things that are wrong here. What do I do? So then what do you do? You start bypassing plugins, right? Just like, I don't know what one of these plugins, the gain staging is off. Right. Like you said, it's pushed too hard, whatever. It's distorting. So I end up bypassing all the plugins. And then before I know it, I've bypassed like every plugin in the session. And I'm starting from scratch. I'm basically starting starting over. And even though there were still some benefits of things that we'll talk about, like routing or whatever, I just hated working that way. I hated starting a mix with a feeling of troubleshooting. I wanted to start a mix with a feeling of like, how can we build and shape this stuff? So I gave up on templates for a long time. And now I'm rethinking that concept. And instead of um, what, what I'm doing now for templates, or I'm planning on doing, is instead of using like loading in everything, like my kick track, snare track, whatever, just having templates with buses. So having my routing set up, which tracks I want to route into where. Um, so like, for example, I always have a drum bus and I always have a drum parallel bus and I always have a main bus and I always use, I typically mix with three different reverbs. You know, hmm. having those things at least set up so that I can work quickly and then just tweak my like reverb plugins on the fly and stuff like that. That's that's my current approach to templates that I'll be implementing. So give me your thoughts on that. I love it. I think it's a great idea. I kind of do a very similar thing. Like I have all the plugins loaded that I like to use on buses particularly, but I have none of them activated. I have to go in and activate each one. And I like that because uh, it forces me to have to think about, you know, do I want to use this plugin or not? And I have to give myself a good right. reason to use it instead of just using it by default every time. So right. I, I do like that approach. And I kind of ran into the same thing too, because yeah, if you recorded everything yourself, that's one story because I would say if, you know, me as a recording engineer, I would have a tendency to record uh, acoustic guitars the same from project to project drums i would probably record the same as far as gain staging goes but the problem you run into when you work with other people's tracks is some people give you no headroom other people give you a lot of headroom and so it becomes mm. way more difficult to um to just use one template and have it gain staged correctly exactly so, and this is exactly yeah. what why i think some professionals do get away with it is because if you're a guy who's mixing maybe for the same group of producers or engineers and they're recording drums in the same room every time with the same mics and the same engineer and then they're sending you those drum tracks, sure, that type of process lends itself really well to a template because, again, same drum, same room, whatever, you can just adjust your gain staging pretty quickly and be on your way. But if you're getting tracks from all over the place, if you're mixing tracks from, from people who recorded at home and are in studios and whatever else, then not so much. Now, if you're an artist recording your own drum kit, then you might be able to, again, get away with this if you're recording the same drum in the same room every time with the same player. That lends itself a bit uh, more easily to templates. But like now what I have... Yeah, basically my effects sends and things that I don't want to keep setting up over and over again. The things that I always use 
I will have preloaded into a template and I'll probably only have, I might only even do one template. Just this is my mix template because I end up mixing That's what I similarly. Do. My approach is similar really regardless of genre I'm finding. Yeah, same. So I, I right think it's on. a great idea, man. You'll have to report back in a couple months and let us know how it's going for you. Yeah, what do you want to talk about next? You want to get into these questions? Yeah, let's get into the questions. I like that. Cool. I'm start I, we only had... Um, I can read it. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, Rob Coleman, who's building a bomb-ass home studio. It's looking awesome. Yes. Certainly nicer than the space I'm working out of. Um, so yeah, kudos same. to Rob. I know it's been a... <laughs> A, uh, a long process for him, and it looks like he's nearing an end because he's thinking about patch bays. So, yeah, read his question. Awesome. Okay, so Rob's question was uh, about patch bays. So he says, patch bays and other solutions for multiple sna uh, snakes in the control room. Do you have any simple solutions? Not, he's not really a fan of soldering it all up in a patch bay. He would prefer something he could just plug XLRs into the back of. So to me, it sounds like he's not a fan of patch base if he could get away with it. <laughs> um, so other solutions to that. I think that we make a good team to talk about this because I know what a patch bay is, but I really have never used one before other than playing around in some more commercial spaces. And I'm kind of taking the approach that Rob wants to to do more, so maybe I can talk about what I do. But before I get into that, maybe Vadim, you could talk about like the uses of a patch bay and all the great things you were telling me offline before we got on. To uh, yeah, sure. So I mean, there's basically there's there's two parts to that question, or there's two pieces of gear in that question. I guess there's this idea of a snake, yeah. and then there's the idea of a patch bay, which are are not quite the same thing. Um, so I'll start with patch bay and I know you use a snake for your drum recording. So maybe then you could talk about that, but yeah. a patch bay is a picture like those old pictures of uh, telephone operators. So, so back when there were only 10 telephones in your little town out West and you had to call the yeah. doctor who would put leeches on you for no matter what was wrong <laughs> with you. Uh, you, <laughs> I don't know. I might've gotten my timeline screwed up. Maybe a that little bit. That could be, uh, that could be. That could be different. But anyway, what you would do is you would pick up your phone and you would get the operator and you would say, operator, connect me to such and such. And then the operator has this big switchboard and they would take your cable uh, and your plug, then this big board, your you're one of the plugs and they would take a, a cable and connect you to the other plug that was whoever you wanted to talk to. And so that's kind of what a patch bay does in the studio. So what it allows you to do is uh, picture you have a bunch of different pieces of gear and they're in a rack like I have to my uh, right here if you're if you're watching this on YouTube I have a, some pieces of gear and I want to play around with them I want to route the audio from my interface into this gear and then from gear into another piece of gear and one way I can do that is by plugging cables into the back of this gear right there's connections in the back of it and I can go back there and uh, close my eyes because it's a horror back there and I can <laughs> I plug different things into different things. And then every, every time I want to switch something, now I want the EQ to go into the compressor. I got to run back there and start switching cables and it's a huge pain. So an elegant solution to that is 
a patch bay. So with a patch bay, what you do is you run the inputs and outputs of different pieces of gear into the back, into back connections on this patch bay. And then what you can do is from the front, you can connect those different pieces of gear in whatever way you want using these little jumper cables, which is just little balanced cables like you would connect any two pieces of gear with. So an example of this, well, I'm I'm using an example of this. Mm-hmm. Right now I'm testing, playing around with my new shiny piece of gear here, my color duo, and it's not in a rack yet. But what I wanted to do is route the outputs of some of my other gear into this thing. So I have um, my patch base set up in a way that I can do that. I can patch in this piece of gear without digging around and back. And I could do the same thing with a guitar pedal, for example. If I wanted to run something in my mix through a guitar pedal, well, the outputs of my interface are connected to the patch bay. So from the front of the patch bay, I have access to the outputs and the inputs of my interface so I can connect those things. A common convention with patch bays so you don't get confused. This is just a good rule of thumb and I think most people use it. So the patch bay, if you can see it, it basically it's two rows of plugs. So this one that I have is called a 48 point patch bay, which I'm not even using half of those, but it means I have uh, 24 connections on the top and 24 connections on the bottom and I can, and the same thing in the back and I can do whatever I want with that. So um, a common practice is that the top row is reserved for outputs. So the output of your interface, anything that's feeding a signal out of it gets connected to the top row and then inputs are connected to the bottom row. And this is a nice uh, rule of thumb because it just keeps you from plugging like outputs into outputs and just doing bad stuff that you don't want to do with gear. So this is a way to, it's just a convention that's uh, commonly used in studios and I've adopted it as well. Nice. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Yeah. So we'll get into patch bay normaling. And so this is basically how your patch bay functions uh, when you have nothing plugged into the front of it. uh, And when you do plug something in, how it changes. Uh, So we'll talk about the first one, full, fully normal patch bay. So what that means is you've got a signal that's being routed Um, you're plugged into the back of your patch bay and that signal automatically is getting routed to the bottom and coming out of the patch bay and Vadim maybe you could jump in and and give some maybe practical uses for that but I'll uh, continue saying that uh, the way a full normal signal flow works for a fully normal patch bay is when you plug patch cable into the front of your patch bay it interrupts that signal that's going in from the top of the back and out the bottom of the back and it interrupts it and now it's going to go through the cable that you plugged into the front. Right. So like the the application I have, if I have nothing plugged in to this patch bay, the way I have it set up is that uh, certain outputs, the top row, you think of each thing as a pair, the top uh, connection is paired with the bottom connection. So if I have nothing plugged in, you can have uh, the top route itself to the bottom automatically. So in my case, if I have nothing plugged into the patch bay, what that means is that the outputs, I have two outputs on my interface, they go directly into this uh, analog rack here. And then 
the output of the analog rack goes directly back into two inputs on the interface. So basically with nothing plugged in, I've chosen to have this chain uh, be automatically made. And if you can set up each pair, and at least in my patch bay and some patch bays you can control this, you can set each pair to have certain behaviors. So what you describe as full normal, which means that uh, if I plug something into the front of one of these pairs, it breaks the connection from top to bottom. So it's just one way you could set it up. Great. And that leads us to the second way you could set it up, which is half normal. And what that means is, like we said before, you've got an automatic signal where you have something in the back of your patch bay. It's going in the top and automatically flowing out the bottom. Um, in a half normal setup, when you plug a patch cable into the front of your patch bay, it doesn't interrupt that connection. So you still have the uh, flow in the back of your patch bay going, but you're also splitting the signal and feeding that signal through the front of your patch bay. If this sounds confusing to you, trust me, like when I first learned about patch bay, I sat down for like an hour with a <laughs> blank spreadsheet and I was like, how am I going to set up this patch bay? And I thought about it for a long time before I came up with what I thought would work. But I'll give you some practical applications for this if you're like, do I need it? If you have multiple pieces of equipment that have inputs and outputs, uh, this could be a good option. Like for example, let's say you have a keyboard and it has a left and right output and you want to play around with sending that keyboard through different guitar pedals or different effects processors, a cool way to do this could be to get a little patch bay, run the output of your keyboard to the back of the patch bay, and then run different effects pedals, or maybe just your effects, your pedal board to the back of the patch bay. And then using these little patch cables, you can just very quickly connect uh, different effects into different chains. Mm. Another one is if your preamp has inserts, right? And you want to do the same thing. So, or your amp, your guitar amp has inserts. You can patch the insert send and return to the patch bay as well. And again, then you can run, you know, connect different effects to it and things without going to the back of your gear and, and, right. and monkeying around with those connections. So that's the, the advantages of having, if you have multiple pieces of gear that you chain in different ways, then it's time for a patch bay. That's what, <laughs> that's the moral. I think, yeah, I think that's a, a safe bet. Um, there was, there was one other type of normaling, non-normaling. This is a setup where you don't have a signal that's automatically flowing from the top to bottom of the back of your patch bay. Essentially, there's no signal flow unless you um, patch something into the front. So Right. So this is just a way of saying like it's just a pass-through connection. In fact, I have an XLR patch bay that you can't see. It's behind me. But it allows me, all that does is brings the XLR connections in the back of my interface to the front of my rack. That's all it's doing. Yeah. Stupid simple, but it just lets me plug microphones into the front instead of going around and plugging them into the back. When I have somebody here ready to sing, I don't want to be back there no, through the don't. spaghetti of cables <laughs> trying Trust to plug me, stuff you in. do not. <laughs> Wait, one oh, cool. second. I thought I heard click. Yeah, I don't want to do that. So let me give my perspective on this a little bit because I'm not against patch bays, but in my setup, I just don't have a use for it, really. The main reason, I think the main difference between Vadim and my setup is I'm fully 100% in the box besides microphones that I plug into an interface. And I, and I love that setup because I have 100% full recallability 
just based off of what I save in my computer. So with a setup yeah. like this, um, I can get away with only having a large XLR with, right now I have two, I have a 16 channel and an eight channel that I could plug in, but I could in theory buy a 24 channel XLR and plug it into all my inputs. And then I just have one XLR that I can feed down into my drum room or guitar room or whatever. And just so nice yeah, talk about that. Set. So that's a snake. That's that. Now you're in snake territory. What is a snake? Exactly. So a snake, basically it's, uh, it's a box that has, uh, a mirror image of all of your inputs that you would be using on your interface directly on your interface. Uh, but you run all of the, instead of running a whole bunch of XLR cables, you have this box and then inside a, a large uh, enclosed cable, a whole bunch of XLR or balanced, um, balanced cables that are running as a group together so you don't have to worry about tangling 24 cables together. Instead, you're just running one thick cable and then at the end, uh, it splays out into all of the XLR, I guess that would be female connections that you can plug into the back of your gear. Right. So like a uh, if you picture, you take 24 XLR cables and, and, and you label each one so that the first cable, yeah. you put a one on the one end and label the other end with a one and then two and two and three and three. And then you zip tied all those cables together you have made a snake. You have DIY made a snake. So it's just a way to keep your studio neat. And then you just know if you're really diligent about it, then you can you know that like, oh, snake cable, the connection number one connects to input number one on my interface and two goes to two. And that way, when you plug all your mics in, it's really easy to know uh, what's mapped where. So it's super convenient way. And Rob in his picture, I think he had a bunch of snakes. So... He's probably yeah. going to have a sweet drum room, I'm guessing. So very cool. Yeah. So in my setup, um, I'm not running any outboard gear. And Vadim is running outboard gear. So when you have uh, compressor plugins or plugins, compressor, uh, analog compressors, <laughs> analog EQs, saturation, like your new um, color duo, uh, Unless you want that permanently tied to a couple, one or a couple inputs, depending on the piece of gear, then a patch bay is really helpful because you can, uh, as simple as plugging in a couple patch cables, you can change the routing and make it do whatever you want to do. Because I know in my setup, one of the reasons I have a snake is because getting behind my desk is one of the things I dread most in life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll be doing something and all of a sudden I'll just start looking up gear. It's awful, Ben. And I realized like <laughs> I've bought and so I sold some gear today actually and last mm. week. And I've bought and sold so much gear over the years. And, and you know what I've learned, Ben? What have you learned? Nothing. I've learned nothing <laughs> because I still, I want something sometimes and I'm like, this is it. This is like the desert island, whatever. And I get it. And then... Either I don't use it or I do use it, but then eventually I still, I'm like, oh, we know what would be cool. One more thing. I know. It's one more thing, thing, Ben. That's all I need. <laughs> yep. 
I think all of us suffer from that <laughs> at different times in our audio journey, but yeah, for sure. For sure. Cool. Well, uh, the next question we had was from Joshua Cassidy down in Australia. Thanks for the question, man. He was asking about, actually, I don't have it in front of me. Can you read it? Yes, I can. Uh, so Joshua asked, reamping or amp sims on acoustic instruments? Yes or no? Do and don'ts. My latest track, I didn't reamp guitar, uh, and he didn't have a DI on it. He had a stealth, which I think is a type of mic, on the 14th fret, and two Rode NTRs for the room. No amp sims, just EQ, compression, some parallel delay blended in on the rooms, and other post-processing. Mm. But should I have reamped or used the sim? Right. So I think a good way to start talking about this is just to, to just break down what is happening in the guitar. So if you have like an electric guitar, if you have any type of guitar, you have strings that vibrate when you hit them and those vibrations are creating some kind of tone. In an electric guitar, the you need to route that signal through the pickup to an amp and then the amp is a cabinet. It's it's a space, effectively. It resonates. Mm -hmm. The whole cabinet resonates. The speaker moves it, and the cabinet has air inside, and it resonates. It's made out of wood. Then you put a microphone on that cabinet, and you're capturing, again, you're capturing not just the sound that's coming out of the amp, but you're also capturing the room, in a sense. You're also capturing the sound coming from the amp, bouncing around the room. So you're capturing the guitar and then you're processing it through effectively two spaces you could say you're processing it through the little space of the amp which is doing something and then again through the space of the room as the mic captures it and when an, when you put an amp sim on something that's what you're emulating you're emulating yeah. the response of the amp the response of the speaker cabinet and the response of the the room being captured uh, with a microphone or whatever so let's think about how that scenario applies to an acoustic instrument like an acoustic guitar an acoustic guitar you have the same thing you have strings the strings vibrate but now you have a body that is designed to resonate as well so that body is effectively kind of like amping the sound of the instrument mm -hmm. it's amplifying it actually in a very real sense if you were to put a bunch of socks into your acoustic guitar the sound would be extremely different right yeah. so that body is already moving and resonating now You've put microphones on it, and again, you're capturing the sound of not just the instrument, but the instrument in a room, in a space. So putting an amp sim on top of uh, miking the acoustic instrument is a bit redundant, and it'll probably give you a wonky result, is my guess. Because again, now you have the, the body resonating, you have the room you have the amp and then again the room and it's just it's it's a lot so that's where i'll start you got any comments on that uh, yeah i think that's a great way of putting it vadim um i think additionally too think about a situation where you might want to plug and say you have an acoustic electric acoustic and you're plugging into an acoustic amp you you wouldn't be you wouldn't mic up uh, your acoustic amp and send that mic tone to the cabinet, you would plug the DI from your acoustic into the acoustic amp. And Good so point. 
the difference there is that the DI from the acoustic, you're not getting any of the hollow body resonance from the acoustic. You're getting a DI signal very much right. like an electric guitar. And so you need to reproduce that room sound. Uh, and the way that you're, the way that uh, an acoustic amp is doing that is through resonating speaker and cabinet of the, the amp itself. Yeah, yeah, well said. So that said, I'll, I will say there are some creative uses that we talked a little bit about offline for reamping, where where I think reamping can be a lot of fun as a textural thing. And I don't have an example to play, unfortunately. But I was working on this hip hop song with um, a Philly rapper named Reese Surreal a couple of years ago. We produced this beat together, and he had produced like the. Uh, the, the main, I guess, instrumentation part of it, the samples and stuff. And as soon as I heard it, I had the sound in my head of this just crunchy acoustic kit. And what I did was I just, I took uh, a virtual instrument drum kit and I programmed just a little kick snare hi-hat pattern. And then I ran that whole kit through like the stock Ampson plugin in Pro Tools, it's called Sansamp, on a super mm. crunchy setting and just obliterated it. And it sounded awesome i love that so it can be a really cool textural thing to uh throw an amp sim on a sound to make it grittier and push the mid-range and just do some some nasty stuff with it um so that's not to say don't ever do it but if the acoustic guitar if you want it to sound like an acoustic guitar yeah the amp sim's probably gonna not get you what you want i've seen some people's to get an artificial room they'll play they'll put monitors up in a big space and actually record what's coming through the monitors. So let's say you recorded your acoustic guitar in a really dead area, uh, and you wanted to get a more lively sound, you could, in mm. essence, reamp that either through a live cabinet or through monitors and capture that a room sound in a completely different area and see what it sounds like. I'm not going to say it will work, but it's, I mean, worth an experiment, right? Absolutely. I've tried that actually. And uh, I, I liked it. It was just a hassle. What I, I had a mix yeah. and then I set up an XY microphone pair and just played the mix out of my monitors and recorded that and then blended it into the mix. And it, it put my actual room into the mix. It was kind of cool for like, um, for that kind of effect. So yeah, that's a, that's a good point, Ben. I like that. Um, anything else you want to discuss before we wrap it up? I think that's good, man. I think that's good for this week. I'm excited to keep testing this uh, the saturation box, and um, I actually bought another little set of cards for it, so I'm going to be trying those out. And I'll just talk, you know, the way I do this, which is the way you should do it, is even with plugins or with any gear you buy. If you've if you've invested the money, you should invest the time into it. And so my plan for this, I've been thinking about is I'm going to open a new session and I'm going to load in a bunch of stuff, not from the same song. I just want to load in like a drum kit, a full mix, some old vocal recording, some old bass guitar recording, load in all these tracks, and I'm going to run them through this box, through the different colors, playing with the gain and stuff like that. And then once I do that, I'm going to be very methodical, as we like to be, I'm going to sit down and listen to all of those things and A-B them and compare and really listen, use our critical listening skills to figure out what is being emphasized, what is being pushed, 
I've done this exercise before with compressor plugins. I have a lot of different compressor plugins, as I'm sure we all do. I've sat down and done this, and it only took one or two times for me to now know, ah, if I want this type of thing pushed, I need this type, this plugin. So my mm -hmm. goal is to do the same exercise with this box, and uh, I'd be happy to report the outcomes. And Ben, I really want you to send me a mix you've been working on because this um, this chain I have sounds so sweet right now. Just running <laughs> stuff through it just makes it five percent better, and I want to uh, I want to show you. You know, I would be open to buying something like that that I could put on like uh, the two bus or something like that that would never change. I just send. Um, you know, the last, p the last part of my, uh, chain just goes through it kind of like a bus compressor or something like that. I would be open. For that's that my goal, man. That. That's so that, that's exactly what I do. I'm in the box completely for everything except my two bus, uh, runs mm. through, runs through some mojo stuff. So cool, man. I will send you some, uh, mixes to play around with and I'm excited to yeah, hear send them to me. It sounds like <laughs> as always join our Facebook group community uh diy recording guys love to hear from you and um give us a like and a rating on the podcast apps wherever you might be listening to us that always helps as we always say vadim check yourself before you wreck yourself have a good one guys If you're enjoying the podcast, take a minute to leave a rating wherever you like to listen to it or share it with your friends on social media. Also, Benjamin and I are working engineers and we love helping people turn ideas into finished productions. So if you're interested in working with one of us or just want to discuss a project you're working on, reach out. You can find my work at calmfrogrecording.com. Get me on Instagram at calmfrogrecording or shoot me an email, vk at calmfrogrecording.com. And you can check Benjamin's workout at dreamloudstudio.com. Hit him up on Instagram at dreamloudstudio or by email, ben at dreamloudstudio.com. And finally, join our Facebook group to engage with a whole group of friendly, like-minded people who are interested in DIY recording. Just search for DIY Recording Guys on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. I'll see you next week.